one, two, there we go. So, envision this, Rocky Mountains in mid-August. I know, doesn't that just feel good to say that? <sighs> just think about it. Two years ago, I was blessed with the opportunity to go uh, to, out to Colorado with a group of guys, some of them from here, and uh, hang out with a bunch of wild, wild and crazy guys with Ransom Heart Ministries. Went to a boot camp or basic camp, basic training, and it was a boot camp with uh, John Eldridge and his team, and we spent three days in the mountains. How many of you know coffee tastes better in the mountains? I don't know what it is. It's just something about 42 degrees in the morning helps, and uh, especially that time of year. And we were up there surrounded by nature, surrounded by beauty. And every morning I'd get up way early and go out, grab coffee first thing, and just sit outside, and it felt good to be cold. You know what I mean? I was freezing, but I was like, oh, I'm so thankful I'm freezing right now. And I would huddle, you know, just hold on to that cup of coffee to warm me up. And during that retreat, uh, John Eldridge, in his skilled way, like a surgeon with, with a scalpel, was able to whittle into and get into our hearts. And one of the things he talked about, one of the big pieces of that is identity, our identity. And yet he goes and even takes it deeper in the terms of this. He basically says this, most of us live the majority of our lives as posers. And when he used that terminology, it just went all over me. Have you ever shown up to a retreat or a Christian setting or maybe a Sunday morning service thinking, I already know this. I've heard this before. And you sort of go with low expectation. Well, I actually didn't go to this. And you believe it or not, I went saying, Lord, do surgery on my heart. And you know what he did? He completely left hooked me. I thought we were going to deal with this, and I was writing in my journal, and all of a sudden I got a left hook, and the Lord dealt with something, and he began to peel the layers back. And I realized that after all these years of even having head knowledge of this, that I was still posing. I was still wearing a mask. I'd still show up, and you would get, sometimes you'd get 60% of me, Maybe on a good day, 85, 90%, but there's always that, that sense of self-protection that I would sort of hold back just a little bit. I have to tell you something. Honestly, trade secret, us pastors are the worst on the planet about this stuff. Partially because we live our entire adult lives under the expectations of other people. Hello. I mean, that's just, we live at the mercy of a congregation of people who you know, judge your sermons every week. I get 400 and I'll get probably today about 411 job evaluations. <laughs> That's an ongoing thing. And over time, if you're not guarded and careful and remaining open and pliable before the Lord, you'll become hard and jaded and protective. Because you do get hurt. People do say stuff. Sheep have teeth. I'm just saying. <laughs> and so sometimes you'll, you'll take these hits and then you begin to move into self-protection. And I didn't even realize how much that was a part of my inner self, my inner life. And so John Eldridge, in his very uh, skillful way, just began to whittle away, and the Holy Spirit began to dissect me. And I realized that as I saw the poser in others, I too was posing. I too was living, covered up, and God began to peel back. Now, that was two years ago, coming up in August, two years ago. And I have to tell you something. Even though I know that, and I've embraced that, there are still a lot of layers to go. You know what I mean? Yep. 
You know, you think you're done, right? It's like peeling an onion. You get one, you go, oh, wait, there's another layer. And then, oh, wait, there's still an, and it's like almost feels endless. But here's the good news. We're peeling layers. And this whole idea of identity comes back to this. We're discovering who and whose we are. Understanding who we are because we spend our entire lives trying to figure out who we are and where we fit in this world. We do this. We do it from, from the time we're a child while people, uh, significant adults, significant others, are telling us who we are or helping us identify ourselves, our culture, our family of origin. All these things factor in to who we begin to put together this aggregate picture of who we are, composite, if you will, of who we are. And at the end of the day, it's really not who we are because those definitions are never completely accurate. They're filtered through our emotions. They're filtered through trauma and pain. They're filtered. So we get to be in our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, our 60s, our 70s, and even beyond, and still don't know who we are. The problem is we don't know who we are because we've not understood whose we are. And the only clear picture of identity you'll ever have as a follower of Jesus is that I am a son, I am a daughter of the Most High God, and it's Jesus himself who defines me. Now, what that predicates is, A, I need to have a relationship with him. And secondly, it predicates that I understand the Word of God and study the Word of God. And let not just me get in the Word, but let the Word get into me. We know the Word works, but you have to work the Word. Amen? And so we allow the Word of God to begin to change our lives. Free from judgment is what we're going to cover today as we continue our series called Identified. And from last week, just a quick review. I want you, I want you to see this. Number one, we talked about you're free from accusation. And this is amazing. This is a massive truth. Listen to this in Colossians 1.22. We know that Jesus paid the ultimate price. He laid down his life, and here's what he did. It says, to present you, and Paul, in writing to, the, to Colossae, he was writing from a prison cell, by the way, and it was about the same time he wrote the book of Ephesians. He had already been on missionary journeys throughout Asia, which now, it's, it's Asia Minor, but back then it would have been, or today it would be modern-day Turkey. But he had already done these trips. He had planted churches, but here's what's beautiful. He had made some disciples in various places who now were planting churches. So we're talking another generation of churches being planted. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And now Epaphras had planted this church in Colossae. And you have to understand Colossae. It was a bustling city, a commerce city on a trade route who had a lot of pagan influence. And there were a lot of cults, pagan cults within that city. So it was kind of an anything goes city. And you show up and you can make a god or an idol out of anything. Sounds a little bit like our culture today, right? Hello. You could invent your own faith, your own religion, your own cult. And it was actually pretty welcome and open there. So in the context of that, Paul has to reach out and bring hope and correction because there had been some infiltrators that had come into the church Claiming to be Christians, but they were bringing other doctrines. And they were bringing doctrines from their pagan past. And trying to overlay them on the Christian faith. And that's where we find ourselves. Colossae was in trouble. Paul is writing now to bring correction. He says this. He says that Jesus gave his life to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. So that's how God sees you if you're a follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean that's how you see you. 
And the mirror certainly won't echo that back. But let me tell you something. God sees the end from the beginning. He knew what you were going to become before you were ever born because he knit you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, he, and we know that very well, the scripture says. But he sees the end product. He sees you after all this shaping and forming and this boot camp that we live through called life. He sees the end product. Amen. And guess what? That is how he relates to you as whole, as complete, as finished. And listen to this. Above reproach literally means unaccusable. Right. Now what we have to understand is there's a very real, there is a very real enemy in the world. His name is Satan, Lucifer, the devil. And we know this in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 12. He is called the accuser of the brethren. By the way, the word for devil literally means slanderer, deceiver. So he slanders us, but in the scripture, in Revelation, it says he's before the throne of God, accusing the brethren before God day and night. He never sleeps. And he lives to accuse. He lives to, oh, oh, but, oh, but God, did you see what they did? And they're your children. Did you see that? Did you see their behavior there? Did you see... Oh, and they call themselves Christians? Oh, they call themselves followers of Jesus? Did you see what they did? Is that voice familiar to anybody? Oh, and you call yourself a Christian and you act like that? You call yourself a Christian and you drive like that? Ooh, well, I'm meddling now, sorry. You call yourself a Christian and you treat your wife like that or you treat your husband or you yell at your children like that? Oh, you lost your temper at work? on a customer like that, and you call yourself, you're a church, and we get back to church, and we're so beat up and beat down that we can't even lift our hands and worship because we feel so unworthy. Why? Because the accuser of the brethren, day and night, never stops. Amen. He never ceases. But the beauty of it is, is that Jesus defanged the enemy. Right. He is a toothless monster at this point. And we're going to see that in the scriptures as well. In fact, throughout the book of Colossians, there's a lot of references to demonic forces at work and at play in our word, world. Week two, we called it You're Leaking Again. And this was a mystery that Paul unpacked. I love mysteries that get solved because we love mystery shows. And here's the mystery. It's a mystery among the Gentiles. That's us, except Elaine. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory, which literally, if you break it down in the Koine Greek language, it literally reads like this. It means Christ in and through you. Right there is a game changer. It's not me being a container. It's me being a leaky vessel. And as I'm filled everywhere I go, I leak out Christ. And basically, we're sliming people all along the way with the presence of God, right? They don't even know what happened, but I got slime. Something just walked by. I don't know what just happened. And here's the deal. We're leaky vessels. Here it is. Christ in you and through you. That, that little present participle in. And it means this. The hope of glory. The word hope literally means confident and joyful expectation of a desired good. That's what it literally means if you break it down. So we have confident and joyful expectation of what? The, the glory of God. Now what does the word glory mean? It's the word doxa. We get doxology from it. But it literally means this, the manifested presence of God. Amen. So here, you break this down in simple terms, it's this. Here's the mystery that has now been revealed. Christ in you and through you, living his life through you, the confident and joyful expectation of God's manifested presence. Can you imagine if we lived with that on our mind every day? I mean, Walmart would never be the same. Come on, somebody. 
And then last week we talked about dead or alive. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10. And it says this. And you. Now, I know you love it when I do this. So I'm going to do it. Because you love this so much. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, he's about to talk about you. I'm about to talk about you. Actually, the scripture is going to talk about you. And here's what the Bible says about you. And you are complete in him. Who is him? Christ. You are complete. Done. Finished. The word to tell us on the cross, it is finished. Jesus finished the work. Now there's sanctification that continues. There's an ongoing consecration of our lives. An ongoing growth and training and righteousness. All that below the line, above the line, we're finished. Complete. Done. It says you're complete in Christ. You know what that tells me? I don't need more. I just need to understand what I already have. Let me say that again because this is really important. A lot of us are crying out for more. Oh God, more of you, more of you, more of you. And God's like, you got the full meal deal. I biggie sized you when you got saved. You got the large fries. You got the extra, you got the 40, route 44. You got the whole thing. You just don't know it yet. So the idea is this, is I want to know Christ in me, the hope. Of, I want to know what I already have. That's what he's saying here. You are complete. You've already got the full thing. Who is the head of all principality and power. And there it is again. Principality and power, those are demonic forces that are at work. And that, the Macintoshes know very well because they've been hit hard. Because they're trying to elevate their game and go to the next level and do what God's called them to do. And anytime you move out for God, you will be met with resistance and opposition. If you're not, you might want to calculate to make sure you're actually going with God. If it's too smooth, I get nervous. I'm not going to lie. But it's where resistance happens is where muscles are built. That's how you build muscle is through resistance. It's the same way spiritually. Amen? So that's where we are. Now, I want to talk about this. John Lynch wrote a great book. He actually with three other, two other authors called The Cure. This book is a game changer. And, I, and somebody early in the service uh, first said, thank you for giving us books and authors. And I actually go and get those books and they're helping me. And I want to encourage you in this. I wouldn't give you this if I didn't think it was important. A book called The Cure. And it really is a Christ is life. Who's your, it's living from the source, Jesus himself. It's along that line. He says this, God never tells me to get over something and just get past it. Now my coaches did, amen? Because that was their job. Get up, run the next play, dust yourself off, forget it, and go forward. But God never does that. He never just tells me to get over it. He never tells me to get, look what it says, or just get past it. Never. Instead, he asks me to trust him with every circumstance. The idea of identity, of knowing who and whose you are, means you come into a place of trust and you move out of the place of performance. The performance mentality that's been overlaid over Christianity in America doesn't come from Christianity. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Americanism. It comes from a Puritan work ethic that says, I work eight hours, I get paid for eight hours. It comes from a mentality and a culture that says, equal time, equal pay for equal time. And the kingdom doesn't work that way. I used to say that the kingdom is upside down and I learned when the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 you got it backwards. The kingdom's right side up. You're upside down. Hello. <laughs> yes, Lord. 
The kingdom is a right-side-up kingdom, the kingdom of God, but we, as the world, we function in a fallen world, which is a shadow of what it should be because it's broken and it's fallen. And our world is upside down. And the goal is to begin to right-side our lives so that we come into alignment with who He is, who His Word reveals Him to be, but also who His Word reveals us to be as sons and daughters, as His very own. So this trust issue is massive for us. In other words, I, in the heart of trust is belief. I want to be a believing believer, don't you? So, let's start with the scripture. Look at this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to continue through this. And I just titled this section, From Death to Life in Christ. When you were dead in your sins, and, and he's talking about baptism. He just used baptism. So, context is king. He just addressed baptism and said what baptism was a picture of. It's a picture of dying with Christ, being crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, Romans 6 and 7. Dying with Christ, but being raised to walk in a new life. Did you know that when you went through the waters of baptism and you followed Jesus, you're raised to walk in a new life. And I've always loved the picture of baptism. It's burial, but it's also washing. You come out of that water and it's like, this is a new day. This, is the, this now is the rest of my life. This is the first day of the rest of my life. And from the get-go... You come out washed clean, and that's what he's referring to. And he says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And here's the beautiful part of this. God made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. Amen. There is no self-made men here. There is no self-made women here. We don't make ourselves. I love the line from Creed and... Um, by Rich Mullins. He says, I did not make it. No, it is making me. I did not make it. It is making me. We don't make ourselves here. And he says this, he forgave us all our sins. I want to break that word all down for you in the Koine Greek. You know what it means? All. It means all. <laughs> it means what it says. He forgave us all our sins. The hard part we have as Americans, again, Puritan work ethic, the way we've been raised, is that we don't think that we could get something ahead of time. I haven't worked for that yet. But here's the thing. When it says he forgave all of our sins, it means your past sins, your present sins, and so far all of you are going, I get that, and your future sins. <laughs> Do you think the grace of God is enough to cover your future sins. We're so afraid to say something like that because we think that will somehow give us a license to sin. But as I said last week, nobody here needs a license to sin. <laughs> I'm just talking about myself. This isn't about permission or a license. It's a permission to live in spite of our sin because it's been nailed to the cross as we're about to see. So stay with me on that. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And some of you are going, I don't even know what you just said. So here's what it was. The Roman government had dropped the hammer of Rome on this whole region and area. They were the dominating political power. They ruled everything. And what they would do when someone committed a crime, they would, one of the worst ways of, of torture and death 
was to crucify them. We saw that in the crucifixion of Jesus. But beyond that, they would crucify common criminals. If you'll remember, when Jesus was crucified, there were common criminals on either side of him. And that was normative for their society. But within that, not only would they crucify them, but they would write a note that said, this is their crime. So when Paul says this and likens the crucifixion of Jesus to our own cancellation of the written code, that means the debts. That's literally what the word means. In other words, there's a debt that we could not pay, but Jesus himself paid it and he canceled that debt with all of its regulations because there were legal rules around debt in their culture. And it was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away and it was nailed to the cross to tell us die. It is finished, paid in what? Full. The debt has been paid. It has been canceled on your behalf because of what Jesus did. When Paul wrote this, they full well understood the meaning of that. They didn't have to unpack it like we do because their culture, they're like, oh my gosh. That note, now you remember what the, what the note was on Jesus' cross? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. It was a mocking, but it was also prophetic. It was twofold. And so that is what he's referring to. The, our debt has been paid. That should make you walk about a thousand pounds lighter today. Because you are free in him from death to life. Listen to this. In verse 15, he's going on to say what Jesus has done in us. And this is true for you now. This isn't theory or theology. This is life. Look what he says. And having disarmed the powers of and authority. That's, a, that's a, a Greek word that literally means demonic forces. I want you to know something. Never forget this. Our universe is highly populated. And I'm not talking about human beings here. You read throughout the scriptures from the Genesis to Revelation and you begin to put together the cast of characters besides us. It is massive. And it dwarfs the population of the world right now. And yet we somehow think we're the center of it all and we're the only ones on this planet. Let me tell you something. Our universe and our world is highly populated. And there's a lot more going on than we see or know. We experience the impact and effects of it on an ongoing basis and the interplay of it, but we don't always recognize it and connect the dots. And so listen to this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. Right there, this is what Jesus did on the cross. He disarmed the enemy. If there's an enemy coming at you with a weapon, it just got disarmed. Amen. If there's an enemy coming at you to bite you, he just got defanged. And that is what Jesus did for you. That's right. But here's where the power lies. The power doesn't lie in the actual weapon or the teeth that the enemy has. The power lies in the lies that they tell. Because they are still able to lie and deceive. That's the nature of their very father, the devil, who John chapter 8 says he was a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of it. He's the father of lies. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that is literally, again, they would understand what that means. We don't. We go, oh, he made fun of them on the cross. No, what he did literally is they would take a criminal or an opposing king or someone who'd come against the government, and what they would do, they'd tie a rope around their neck. 
and they would pull them behind a chariot or a horse through the city streets, parading them to humiliate them and as an example of what would happen to anybody that comes against Rome. And so it was a common thing. They would drag this, this criminal through the streets or an opposing king that they captured, and they would humiliate them. But at some point, that individual would collapse from exhaustion. And guess what? They didn't stop. They just kept dragging their body, their carcass, through the streets. And the people watching this knew full well, this is what happens to those who come against him. Come against the ruler, the emperor, the king. So he says this, Jesus disarmed the powers. And picture what Jesus just did for you. He disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them. He drugged them through the streets. This is what Jesus did on the cross. This is the power of the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. What is the therefore, therefore? We have to ask that because context is king. And here he's saying, now, there are people coming in and infiltrating your church who are trying to teach other things. They're bringing doctrines, and we're going to see pagan doctrines here called asceticism. It's been brought in, but also Judaism. They were saved. They were born again. They are now under a new covenant under Jesus Christ, having the written code erased, having the law erased. Now they're under Jesus, and he says this. They're still bringing this back in. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He goes, wait a minute. You're not under that anymore. Hello. You're now under grace. You're now under Jesus. And look what happens. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. He's talking about the new moons, the festivals, the holidays, the holy days, the Sabbaths. All those things were not the real thing. They were a shadow of the real thing. You ever been walking out on, on bright concrete in a sunny day and you see your shadow and it's, it's disproportionate to who you are because it's not real. It's just a shadow. How weird would it be for people to come up and begin to talk to your shadow while you're standing there? <laughs> And we do that in churches all the time. We, we favor the shadow. We favor the image of and miss Jesus. He's saying literally, I'm the real deal. Look what he says. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Let me say something in love. And I said this on Wednesday night. This is critical. If you're enamored with this church, please don't be. Because we're a bunch of people here who will hurt you. We're a bunch of people who will let you down here. We will love you with everything we have, but we will fall short because we are a shadow of the real deal. The real deal is Jesus. Be enamored with Jesus. Don't be enamored with St. Mary's or, or St. Barnabas or Holy Ghost Lutheran or Hill Country Bob. Don't be enamored with church. Be enamored with Jesus. Grab hold of the groom and the bride comes along, but don't grab hold of the bride and ignore the groom. Hello. Be enamored with Jesus. Listen, I love you and it will never be my intent, but I will let you down. Can I just be straight? Because I'm a dude. I am called to this. This is the call of my life. I'm walking it out. I stood over there in the corner and looked up as though Jesus is up there in the corner somewhere. I looked up and I said, I was created for this just before I walked up here. And you know what? I fully believe that. But I also know I'm just a guy. 
Don't be enamored with me. Don't be enamored with the church. Be enamored with the real thing because we're just a shadow of the real deal. And let's get enamored with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Landing the plane. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility. That's called asceticism. It was a pagan belief where they thought, not only do I want to be humble, I'm going to humiliate because by humiliating myself, I'll please the gods. So they would literally self-mutilate themselves as a show of contrition for their sinful behaviors. And so he says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility, asceticism, and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. They were bringing in doctrines from paganism and trying to overlay them on the Christian church. And Paul was teaching them, don't even allow them in. Do not follow this. So he was being very serious. You have to understand the letters of Paul were written to specific churches for specific reasons into specific issues. Yep. And if you don't read the Bible that way, you'll be lifting scriptures out right and left and making them, putting them on your wall and on note cards and all that. And all of a sudden, you're completely off the rails of what Paul intended with that word. That's why we have to be good students of the Bible. Amen? That's why we have to be good disciples, followers of Jesus, students of the word, and study to show ourselves approved unto God, not unto man. That's why we have to dive into this scripture and stay in it. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up. He's describing these deceitful teachers. He's lost connection with the head. Who's the head? Jesus is the head from whom the whole body supported, held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. He's saying this, a severed arm is not going to function properly because it has been separated from the body and separated from the head. And he's saying these false teachers have come in and they're not connected to Christ. Christ is not the real deal. And because of that, and here's the deal, and I love everyone here and I'll just say the truth in love. Any one of us in this room has the potential to be disconnected to the head and to get away from our relationship with him and go off the rails. This is why we need each other. We need each other. We need each other to come alongside. There was a book that came out a number of years ago. It got really popular, and someone gave me the book, and they were like, this is amazing. It's changing my life. And I started reading it, and I remember going, man, this is pretty cool, actually. Wow. Wow. And Annette, Annette took it, picked it up, and she goes, this is a lie from the pit of hell. I'm like, wait a minute. I was kind of digging that. I was, I was getting into that. That's kind of cool. It kinda, she goes, this is, this, is, this is not the Word of God. This is off. And you know what? I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that. I'm telling you. She's not the Holy Spirit, but she's the closest thing I know. I'm just saying in my own life. And I'm telling you, when she has discernment like that, I better listen. Hello. Brothers, men, I'm not just trying to score points to the ladies here. I'm just saying we need to listen. God has given them great grace in that arena. And she had great discernment in that. And sure enough, that book turned out to be a, a mess. And it created a lot of friction in a lot of churches. But thank God for, for the Holy Spirit working through my wife. Amen? Amen? Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, that basic principles is the same thing we saw about authorities and power. Same word used. These are demonic forces. Why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. You ever heard do nots? I want to be known as a people who are known more for what we do than what we do not. Hello. Don't you? Well, that church, you know, you can't chew gum, you can't 
can't, you can't, you don't, you don't, you can't, you don't. It's like, well, then what can we do? Well, you can't live and don't laugh and do not smile by any means. In fact, don't have any fun whatsoever because we don't want the world to think this is easy. But it is joyful. It is joyful. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands. Last scripture. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. This is where we have to be discerning. The enemy will infiltrate church bodies and families with teachings that are not completely congruent with the scripture. When I was in school, a teacher one time drew a horizontal line on the board and then she drew another horizontal line on the board and she said, what are those? We're like, they're parallel, they're parallel. And she said, they appear to be. She said, but I actually drew one just a couple of degrees off. And she said, you know what will happen a few miles down the road, on the other side of town, if we were to run those lines out? And we're like, what? She said, they'd be feet apart. And the further you go, the further apart they would get. Mm -hmm. But at first, they looked like they were right in line. This is why it's so important for us to know God's Word and to study the Word and stay in the Word and not just be in the Word, but allow the Word to live in us so that when the counterfeit comes, we recognize it. You know how they used to tell, uh, or how they used to train tellers how to identify counterfeit money? They would never let them handle counterfeit money. So that when one comes through after they've handled bill after bill after bill after bill, suddenly something feels different. It's a different weight, it's a different texture. It just doesn't feel right. And that's how they would train them to identify the counterfeit. Let me tell you something. When you're so immersed in truth and so immersed in Scripture, when the lie comes along, you'll recognize it. Wait a minute. Something's not right here. Amen? That's our heart, to be well-trained and understand what truth is. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. There, there's that asceticism again, false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. That's the mutilation. And they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, they do not impact behavior. We're not here for behavior modification. We're here for the renewing of the mind. To change the way we think. And when we change the way we think, our behavior will follow. But we want our minds renewed to Christ as our source, as the one. And when that happens, our behaviors fall into alignment with him. I don't run around trying to act holy, be holy, and, and, and straighten myself up. I run around so connected to the vine that anything that's not of the vine just falls off. It has no appeal. So as we close today, I want to encourage you in something. We've moved from the place of bondage to freedom in Christ. The scripture just addressed it. What he did on the cross, he disarmed the enemy on your behalf. And my question for you today is, are you ready to step over the line and go all in with Jesus? Are you ready to do what the Bible calls being born again? That's saying, I've given you everything. I see what you did. I accept that as truth. And I, I want that to be true for my life. I receive that truth. And I give you my heart. I give you my life. Warts and all. Bumps and bruises and all. I give you me. And the Bible says when you do that and you decide and make, make him the Lord of your life, he literally 
The Bible calls it being born again. It's like you're born again, again. You're born again. And if you're here this morning, you want to step over the line, we're here to help you do that. I did that when I was 19 years of age. And before that, about this much church in my life, which is probably fairly obvious. But I am so thankful that at 19, I stepped over the line. And so my question for you is here today, right now, why wait? Why not now? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for truth. And thank you for bringing us from the place of bondage to freedom because of what Jesus did on the cross and ultimately what he did in the resurrection. And we live life out of that source, out of the resurrection. And I'm thankful for that. Father, I pray for my friends here and family here who maybe some have never stepped over the line to go all in. Maybe they're waiting for the right time, whatever that is. But Lord, let this be the day of salvation for them, the day that they close the gap today. So Lord Jesus, I pray for any person here who's ready to take that step. If you are here and you're ready to take that step, we're going to be up here at the end and we're going to have prayer counselors up here and you can come to the front and all you have to do is tell them I'm stepping over the line, I'm going all in. That's all you got to say. And they'll pray with you and they'll encourage you. And we'll start this journey together. There are other people here today, maybe you were here last week and I had everybody put their hands out and we just prayed a simple prayer to embrace our identity in Jesus. And I want to encourage you, we've had, we've had seven days since last week and we've all slept since then and life has happened since then. So I want to invite you to simply position yourself and posture yourself and just say, Lord, I'm yours. I thank you that I'm defined by you and not by my mirror, not by my own thoughts. I, I'm defined by you and who you say I am. Would you just utter that as a prayer? Just say, Lord, I'm defined by you. I'm defined by who you say I am. Can you just utter that to him? Just recommit, re realign, recalibrate your scale. Lord, I, I recalibrate my own personal scale. I am committed to you and I, and I am defined by you, who you say I am not even by who I think I am. And Father, we do this with gratitude and we receive this with joy. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen. God bless you. Have an amazing week.